Is this everything that there is, or is there more? The physicist Sir Arthur Stanley Eddington said, The stuff of the world is mind stuff. And now, 50 years later, quantum physics is validating that statement. Our universe exists within our own consciousness. I'm Ron, and welcome to Simplest State, where we explore creativity and the expression of consciousness in the lives of our guests. V.Z. Crichton was educated at England's prestigious Eton College and the University of East Anglia. At a young age, he learned Transcendental Meditation, also known as TM, and later chose to become a teacher of TM at a course in Mallorca, Spain. He was the director of marketing and e-commerce for Compact Computers, and in that capacity managed $3 billion worth of business in the United Kingdom and Ireland. He then became the director enterprise for UK and Ireland, adding sales of a billion dollars annually. Going on to be their director of marketing and e-commerce, he was responsible for brand and demand generation. In 1999, he set up the pioneering search engine AltaVista for Europe, building operations in 16 countries across the continent. He was then vice president of Europe, Middle East, and Africa for Palm Incorporated, which at that time was the world-leading personal digital assistant and smartphone maker. With two friends, he then built and ran an Eastern European property investment fund, which invested in Bulgaria's capital, Sofia. In 2020, he joined the board of Marshi Foundation, a charity supporting 120 teachers of transcendental meditation in the United Kingdom. Vizi Crichton, Welcome to Simplest State. It's a pleasure to have you here, and thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you, Ron. Thank you for that introduction. He sounds a very interesting guy that you're talking to. It's a bit strange to hear your own biography read out, but there we are. I'm sure it must be, but you do have a fascinating biography, VZ. Now, you had had what we could consider a traditional education. But what was not particularly traditional was quite early on, at about the age of 20, you had decided to learn Transcendental Meditation. And I'm wondering, was there something, some spiritual element in your upbringing that led you to seek for some technique of self-development? Well, I'd love to say yes, but I'm afraid I can't. Um, it, it was the 60s, and uh, we, we were, we had shed the restraints that our parents had and had have to, had have to have with the war years and all that happened after the war. And uh, we were the first generation, as, as you know, because you're one of, one of us, uh, who were free to go and explore. My truth of uh, learning to meditate was uh, really much more mundane. I was staying with friends in London, uh, met people who had just come back from a Tibetan um, retreat center in Scotland called Sami Ling. And I was so impressed with their silence and uh, peacefulness that when a few days later someone turned up at the flat who was running a meditation center, I said, oh, can I come and learn? And it was as innocent as that. And it happened to be Transcendental Meditation. And I did learn. And... Um, 
I, it had fantastic effects. So um, I had no um, sort of intellectual yearning in order before learning. It was almost an accident. And I was very impressed with the people at the center. And so would go and, you know, spend time with them and talk about how more people could learn to meditate. And then brought a teacher to my university and he taught uh, lots of my fellow students. I was up in Norwich and, uh, and, and thus it began. And I was just so impressed with how it changed my view of the world. I found uh, everything lighter and brighter. I found a tremendous inner joy once I started meditating regularly. And so it was really a no-brainer to carry on and uh, meditate regularly and eventually start thinking of, would this be something I'd enjoy going on a longer course, maybe even learning how to teach it. So it was all uh, quite natural, a natural unfolding. And then you became a, a teacher in Spain and yeah. then went on to actually teach Transcendental Meditation to other people? Yeah. So at the time, Marishi was running courses in Mallorca. That's Marishi Mahesh Yogi, the founder of Transcendental Meditation. Yeah. So that was, um, he was training teachers uh, on an island off Spain, quite a big island, Mallorca. And um, I must have joined a course in uh, about 1970 and was there for six months. And at the end, uh, I thought uh, I would love to go off and start teaching. And I thought it'd be fun to teach in America. So Marishi asked me, what, what will you do? And I told him. And he said, and your education? And I said, oh, well, no, I haven't finished my university studies. And actually, I had walked out of university in order to train to teach TM. And so he said, it'll be good to finish. So, so I went back to university. And, but during my holidays, uh, university holidays, uh, I would go out to wherever he was in Fuji in Italy or Lantia in Spain or uh, Salisburg in Switzerland, wherever he happened to be. And um, so, so that's how... I got involved in, in uh, meeting Marishi, really. And then at the same time, I was running a centre in my university town. So we, uh, someone gave us a house and we opened a meditation centre. Uh, three of us, TM teachers, Transcendental Meditation teachers, and we would teach all over the area, which was the, the county is called Norfolk, and we would teach in the, in the town of Norwich and then in the towns and villages all around Norfolk. So that was a lot of fun. And we taught hundreds and hundreds of people, which was, you know, great joy. What, what were the rewards that you felt you gained in teaching meditation to others? Well, they weren't financial. <laughs> um we, we lived on a shoestring, but um, it, it is remarkably satisfying when people turn up to learn to meditate as they do because they're feeling worried or they're very stressed or they're not sleeping well or they're getting headaches or whatever. And um, you teach them something very simple. Uh, you inspire them to do it regularly and they change. And uh, the results are never predictable in my 
experience. But people always start getting better and start feeling more confident, start uh, feeling happier, start feeling less stressed, start behaving better, maybe find it easier to give up cigarettes or something that they'd wanted to achieve. So it's a, a an inner strengthening that goes on as you meditate regularly. And regular meditation, with TM anyway, is, is essential. So, and, and that's the reward. I had actually thought I might like to be a social worker or something when I left university. And then once I started teaching to meditate, I thought, well, actually, this is more precious. This is more useful to people than than doing that sort of work so if i can that's that's what i'll what, what i'd like to do wonderful uh, <laughs> now, I, I, from there you you went on to work with with compact computers but till that time you didn't seem to have a particularly technical background i'm wondering how did it come to be that you went then from a, a teacher of meditation something so sublime to then something that was so so concrete and tangible as as computers pure logic <laughs> so this by would be something like 18 years later and i had worked uh with marishi in switzerland for a number of years and then i taught in london uh for a number of years and I was getting to the age of 38 and I started thinking, so what exactly am I going to live on financially when I'm, when I'm 60 or 70? Uh, because teaching TM, even though it's, uh, it's, it's a joy to do it, you certainly don't earn a living wage. So um, I was just starting to think, what, what shall I do? And a friend of mine had joined Compaq and his job, he was a TM teacher, actually. His job was to open a major account sales team. And Compact was small in those days, and it had no major account sales presence. So I was, I think, the second major account sales person that they they had. And um, I knew absolutely nothing about finance, nothing about technology. But uh, if you're able to sell the concept of meditation to people in the city of London, which I used to do, uh, the good people at Compaq thought, well, we'll give them a go. And uh, so uh, so I was given a job and it was an amazing experience to be given a job, a salary, a car, um, all sorts of things that were, you know, beyond my previous working, working experience. So that was... Uh, that was fun, and uh, Compact was, was great. It was very, very enjoyable. But it must have been very challenging at the same time, because you're, you're not only entering the business world for the first time, but you're going into a field that you're not really very familiar with. Yeah. Well, it, it was and it wasn't. I, I got tremendous support of nature, and this is something that often people who do TM talk about, that life starts becoming easier. So as an example, they said to me, look, we would like you, VZ, to go and sell our computers to big banks. And they had no presence. Compaq had no presence in the big banks. So the biggest one at the time that I was asked to go and deal with was called uh, the Halifax, which is a 
it's called a building society, but it's essentially a bank. They uh, and uh, they had of the order of seven hundred branches around uh, around the UK, but they were very very secretive, and they would not meet uh, representatives of um, computer firms. They decided everything they wanted to do, um, and uh, just sent for equipment to test it. But someone said to me, "Oh, by the way, they're testing your machines at the moment, and they say it's very slow." And I'd only been there a week and knew absolutely nothing. But I just said, and I have no idea where this came from. Tell them that Compaq thinks they've got the clock speed turned down, and amazingly, they had, and they were so impressed that. Uh, that we could deduce this over the phone from a great distance. That they invited me up there, and um, that the 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 long and the short of it is that they've probably spent uh, since then. It was about nineteen eighty nine or nineteen ninety. They probably spent of the order of twenty million a year dollars with uh, with Compaq and then HP. I think they still buy HP because everything they buy is is from us. And I, I had that sort of great good fortune. So I, I was lucky enough to be able to make up for zero knowledge with a lot of good luck. So this comment you made about their clock speed, <laughs> that is something you attribute to what you referred to as supportive nature? Well, who who knows what it is, but... I suspect you're the same. That in my life, I've had good things happen without obvious causes, almost like magic. Most of the time, I mean, the, right. the mundane example is you, you drive into town and uh, you can barely move, and there are certainly even no parking spaces. But you're the guy for whom a parking space turns up you know, just where you need it. It's that sort of thing just happens to me so much. And it happens, the longer I meditate, uh, the better my experience is, the more it happens. And from Compaq, Pizzi, you, you went on to work with Palm computers. Yeah. Uh, Alta Vista at first, and then Palm. What were those transitions? What brought them about? So Compaq, um, we became... When I started, the sales team could sit around a dining room table. You know, there were so few of us. But by the time uh, I finished, I, I was running major accounts at one stage. We had 150 people in that team. But the company as a whole w was just a few hundred. And um, we had bought globally digital equipment, DEC, which is a huge company, it was of the order in the UK of something like, um, I'm guessing, about 20 times the size in terms of number of people. And to go from a very entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial environment where you know everybody, you can make anything happen, into a pretty big company, it was much less interesting to me. It's a different skill to operate in a, you know, in a big company environment. So when we bought DEC in uh, Houston, where Compact was based, one of my friends found amongst the things that he was responsible for was this search engine called AltaVista. And it was sort of in a back office somewhere in digital equipment. And he thought, crikey, that's an internet search engine. I bet we could do something with that. And so he dusted it down. He uh, got involved. 
and he persuaded Compaq to sell it. Uh, he became the president and uh, it was sold to um, a venture capital company called CMGI for of the order of two billion. And um, I said to him, look, why don't I come and help you? So he said, good, you run Europe, Middle East and Africa. So AltaVista happened, it was running in America and uh, I got the job of setting it up across Europe and then some other parts of the world. So that was a lot of fun. And it was going from a very big enterprise environment to something much smaller. In fact, we started off with two of us in a small office and then built it up from there. I'm one of those people that are old enough to remember Altavist <laughs> as, as, as one, of, one of the pioneering and one of the leading search engines of that time. This was all before Google came yeah, on the scene. Yeah. And um, there were a few of them. Uh, Yahoo, I think, was one of them at that time as well. Yeah, Yahoo was slightly, yes, of course, it was a search engine, but Yahoo was different in that they, it was manual, basically. I mean, they they built lists and their business model was different in that they wanted you to stay on their website for as long as possible. Google were very bright. They, um, they focused on, well, Google put an end to people like AltaVista and Ask Jeeves and, and the other ones because they did such an outstanding job with search. And then they built out a self-service operation and then they built out a sort of networked the networking of your of your advertising campaigns, and, and they were just very smart. But being at AltaVista for a couple of years was was great fun, as you can imagine. And then from there, you went with Palm, which which again I I do remember and had a Palm myself. I have to thank you for all the support you've given me all my. <laughs> <laughs> so Palm Palm was uh, slightly different in that it. It was also a small company, uh, always, and they had a particular problem in Europe in that um, they were doing well in America, but the European operation had become a bit dysfunctional. People were not motivated and all that sort of thing. So it was a different job, and it was really getting the European countries, they all, you know, France, Germany, Switzerland, there were palm operations in all these countries, um, getting them properly staffed and and uh, motivated and, and doing well. And it was huge fun. It was very interesting. So I would spend a lot of time in Silicon Valley and then was based in the UK and traveled ceaselessly around Europe uh, for palm. I, I remember I really liked my palm. And what, what happened to them? What brought about the demise of the Palm? Well, the, the demise was the iPhone. So Palm had uh, a, a really great personal digital assistant, PDA, the Palm Pilot, which, which you had. And then it built an excellent um, smartphone. It was called a Trio. But essentially, Apple came up with something infinitely better and marketed it so well. So your question was, what happened to Palm? Um, they had built, after my time, they'd built a very good um, operating system. I think it was called WebOS. And the whole thing was sold amazingly to HP, uh, who then ditched it. And I, I've no idea how much they paid, say, I don't know, maybe $2 billion. I've no idea. But it's an extraordinary thing to me because... HP could have been the third player 
alongside um, the uh, Apple iOS operating system, the Android operating system. The uh, the Palm uh, with the Palm operating system with um, HP's backing could have been a third player, and I think the smartphone ecosystem might have been a lot um, a lot more competitive and a lot more interesting than it now is as a sort of two horse race. And of course, it's such an enormous business now. I think it's fifty percent of Apple's uh, Apple's revenues. And and I believe Samsung has a larger market share still. Is that right? Probably yes. I think Samsung still make money, but most Apple makes a lot of money. They they have very high margins. Most people on Android don't don't make so much money. And of course, Google is not in it for the hardware revenues. Google's in it because much more than 50% of search, which is where their revenue comes from, takes place on mobile devices. Probably, I don't know the figures, but maybe 70% of um, all search takes place on a, on a mobile device. So Google had to be there. Yeah. I'm actually going to ask you a question now, uh, inspired by this whole discussion that I wasn't planning to <laughs> ask, but I am curious to know, with all the recent events, what are your thoughts on Facebook and their social responsibility in that in that context? I don't have I don't know enough to comment intelligently, but I think Facebook is trying to say is trying not to take responsibility for what appears on its platform, whereas a newspaper or a publisher, someone writes a book. If um, if you dislike what they've said, you can go after them in court and you have to be responsible as the publisher for what you've printed. Facebook is finding it convenient, which it is to them, not to have to take responsibility for what's there. And I know they do employ tens of thousands of people trying to moderate the forms and things, but it's not good enough in in my humble opinion, uh, they're making uh, enormous amounts of money. I think Mark Zuckerberg is worth, I don't know, north of 50 billion, 60 billion. Uh, they're making huge, huge amounts of money. They have a responsibility in my sort of ignorant way of thinking about things. They have a responsibility for what appears on their platform. Your ignorant way of thinking about it is about a, a million times more informed than all the rest of us. I want to go back a little bit to the, the pre-technical days, um, because after you became a teacher, and, and this era fascinates me, you spent quite a bit of time working directly with Maharishi Mahesh in Switzerland. And I wonder if you could, I mean, that's such a unique and special opportunity to work with such a inspired spiritual teacher someone who's created a, a, a very successful worldwide organization to bring upliftment and provide this technique for the benefit of others. What can you tell us about that period that you spent there working with Maharishi? Well, he is, he was uh, a saint, and you could feel it. Um, I don't know if ever you've been to a cathedral or a temple or something you feel or been with a, some really great person, male or female, you can feel a sort of sanctity and a, a clarity and a joy in in the presence, in, 
in such a temple or such a cathedral or with such a person. With Marshi, he absolutely radiated it. You walked into the room and you just felt completely uplifted and expanded wherever you were with him, whatever the time of day or night. And the whole room would be just erupting with joy and laughter and um, and happiness. It was very tangible. So I was I was particularly lucky because I was able to write. I was good with words. And Marshi loved writing. So for me, it started um, one day he was going through various letters in a big group, various letters and telexes and faxes, not faxes, um, letters that had come in. And he was just wanting to find the words to answer things. And I was able to come up with words and finish his sentences. And he, he would write a lot and he would ask me sometimes, amongst other people, to write for him and with him. And because he liked to write when he was traveling between courses or between countries, you would often go with him. And because when he was writing, phone calls would come in from people wanting answers about things, or he would start thinking of things he wanted to be achieved. As as one of the writers, you'd end up with other responsibilities as well. And so gradually, um, my life uh, in Switzerland got filled with all these fascinating experiences and responsibilities around Marishi, all to do with his mission, which, which was simply to teach lots of people to meditate and in order that they could enjoy the benefits. So it was a great privilege. And I was there six years. It's something of the order of six years. Um, just uh, being with him in Switzerland and later France and various other countries doing the work. And he was uh, extraordinarily energetic. He would start very early in the morning and he'd, uh, he'd be still working very late at night and um, accomplishing uh, an extraordinary amount. I, I'm not sure how many teachers he trained, how many academies were built, how many centers were opened, but it became an enormous organization, all dedicated to bringing greater happiness and enrich consciousness to more people. So yes, great, great privilege, great privilege. You pinch yourself that that you could be so lucky to see that, you know, to to uh, to be in the presence of a saint. I do remember the first time I saw him was um, in Kursen in Austria. I'd gone on a course in about 1969, a one-month course. All I knew at that stage was this was a very precious technique that made me and other people feel enriched and feel uh, more alive and happier and behave better and all that. And um, I sat in that room transfixed for a month while he explained why it achieved all these effects. And that that was really what sold me on, on wanting to learn to be a teacher and then to become a teacher. And then running off to do all these um, jobs in technology, they were fascinating in themselves, but they weren't an end at all. Uh, my my interest was just in paying off my debts <laughs> from teaching TM and being able to get back to doing it again, because I think it's something very precious, something the world needs and something that helps a lot of people. In, in India, it's very much a tradition 
that when one spends time with a great spiritual teacher, that the knowledge that's imparted from the teacher, the knowledge that's gained by the student, is generally understood to be not so much in terms of formal lessons, but is more or less absorbed by spending time. What is called in India darshan, the, the sight and presence of an enlightened teacher. Did you feel that, that you gained uh, a knowledge and understanding just through the presence of Marshi, working with him for those six, seven years? Yes, uh, uh, absolutely, because um, I came away and um, taught uh, a lot of people. In First of all, we ran a big campaign, lots of teachers in, in a part of England called Kent, and we taught hundreds and hundreds of people. And then uh, I did this... Um, taught in Northwest London and we taught hundreds of people. And then in my business life, r- really, my success didn't come. And, you know, things went well, but they didn't come from anything in me. They came from all the things I'd learned with him, how to deal with people, how to think, you know, how to think about the future, how to distill information, how to make decisions Spending time with Maharishi, you, you learned all sorts of really important skills, how to get people on your side, how to get support for a project. Uh, all, all that sort of thing became natural. And they certainly weren't part of my upbringing or education. And they absolutely were things that I was um, fortunate enough to learn working around him. What, what do you feel was the most important aspect of your education? Was it your time at Eton? Was it your, was it your time at, at, in East Anglia? Was it the time with Marshy? Was it working with all those very large and successful firms? Where do you feel that you gained the most for yourself? Not in terms of monetary accomplishments, but in terms of your own growth, health, satisfaction... Well, t- taking them in no particular order, Eton is, is a famous school, but, but rightly so. And one of the things that nobody, it, it was founded in 1440, Henry VI. The, it, it's boys only. It's a boarding school. Uh, and it's um, been phenomenally successful. For instance, 20 prime ministers of this country were educated at Eton. And uh, so it's it's had a tremendous output. But one of the great things about Eton is it teaches you how to lead. Amazing, the school, amazingly, the school is pretty much run the, by the boys in a structured way. And from a very early age, you learn how to lead. And that, that was a great benefit. So I got, I got a lot out of, of um, school. Moving on to the technology world, it was so exciting. Um, the last uh, 30 years, which is the time that I've been fortunate enough to be involved, saw the, the boom in, in PCs, it saw the explosion of the internet, and it saw the explosion of smartphones. And, you know, in a tiny way, I, I was a party to, to those various huge movements. And it was just so thrilling to be in amongst that and have a sense of, of what was going on and what the future was going to look like. So I love that. But those benefits pale into insignificance compared to the knowledge 
and experience of the growth of consciousness, which is what one learnt with Maharishi. And if it's possible in your life to uh, refine your level of consciousness, then that's the most the most precious thing one one could have, and that's all down to his knowledge and his guidance for for all of us who are able to learn to meditate and become teachers and all that. Now, this this is not a gotcha interview, and I don't mean to ask <laughs> a difficult questions. Here we go. Here we why, go. <laughs> why, why do you say that? Why do you say that the development of consciousness would take precedent and in, in importance in your life over all other aspects of your rather impressive uh, life history? Well, it's very kind of you to say it's impressive, but um, consciousness is all all we are. And um, if you're narrow in your mind and moody and disruptive to other people and limited in your behavior and doing damage to your neighborhood and your environment, you're not much of a joy to yourself or, or to the people around you. If it's possible to turn that on its head and grow in inner strength and wisdom and inner joy and expanded awareness uh, you be- and, and love and happiness, you become more of a joy to yourself and to the people around you. So it, it, it is, to my way of thinking, by far the most precious gift one could receive. So that's why I place it, place it up there. Did you get me? Did you get me? <laughs> well said. Well said. Yes, yes. And, and the reason I, I, I'm asking is it, in the introduction to oh, yes. my podcast, I, I quote Sir Arthur Eddington. He said, right. the stuff of the world is mind stuff. And um, Einstein, of course, has said many similar things. And quantum physics is verifying the actuality that, in fact, um, the universe exists on a very, very unmanifest level, a virtual level. And consciousness is the primordial stuff of the universe. Right. And I want to know, what did you think? That's very well put. That's very well put. And um, I wish I understood physics. It just passes me by. It's a bit like mathematics. It, it just, you know, goes over my head. But uh, I, I had heard that before, that physicists are starting to feel that... Uh, Consciousness or something that sounds remarkably similar in its definition or the unified field might be the basis of all creation. It certainly feels like that when you meditate and when you transcend, you start to feel more and more in tune with with all of creation. It's a gradual process, but one could imagine an end point when you do become totally integrated with the underlying basis of all manifest creation a feeling of being complete, which is what I imagine an Indian uh, would would claim would be the definition of a saint, an enlightened person. What now do you feel is the most motivating factor in your life? Well, so uh, short term, I'm very interested in helping. There are 120 teachers of uh, transcendental meditation in the UK, I'm very interested in helping them be as successful as possible, just so that more people can start getting getting the benefits and um, and so we enrich society. 
But long term, I have to say I'm very interested in becoming more more of a recluse, and uh, I'm getting getting on now, and uh, and really focusing on my own growth of consciousness. There's a great temptation to run around and uh, be busy, 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 and not focus on yourself. And I, I'm interested in self development, accelerated self development. So that's that's the long term plan. You've been very generous with your time, Busy Crichton. And I, I'm, if you don't mind, I'll ask you just one more question, and then we can close. <laughs> if you had one more question that you had not been asked yet that you would like to answer, what would that question be? Well, I, I actually, um, what I would ask would be, um, what book would uh, means most to you? And I have a, a particular reason for asking, uh, for posing that question, which is uh, a dear friend of mine was called Vernon, is called Vernon Katz, and I'm in touch with him a lot. And Vernon um, worked with Murashi all through the 60s. He met him, I think, in about 1960, 1961. And he worked uh, on Murashi's commentary on the Bhagavad Gita. Vernon had studied um, Sanskrit at Oxford and is quite a scholar. And I think he has a PhD, actually, in Sanskrit. And he continued to work. And I, I was lucky enough to work with Vernon a lot in the early 70s around Murashi. And we became good friends, and we still are good friends. But the uh, book that really interests me is he wrote, uh, over many years, he uh, did a commentary on the Brahma Sutras with Maharishi. And he wrote a book, really, of Maharishi's commentaries. Uh, it's in two volumes, and I particularly like volume one. So of all the books that I, I, I read quite a lot, of all the books that uh, are precious to me, that one is the most precious. Vernon Katz's Maharishi's Commentary on the Brahma Sutras, Volume 1. I think I've probably read it about nine times, maybe even ten now. And uh, I, would, I would really recommend, uh, for anyone who's deeply interested in this world, have a, have a go. Where is that book available? Is it usual, retail, and Amazon? <clears throat> yes, I think so. I think so. And actually, there is, I think so, Amazon, there is one other book that um, I'm very, very keen to read, Dr. Tony Nader, and I think it's called um, something like Consciousness is Everything, something like that, which I think probably is a worthy follow-up to the book I've just described. Wonderful. V.C. Crichton. Thank you so much for being generous with your time, sharing your remarkable experiences with us on Simplest State. Thank you. Great joy. Thank you.